Hello, and welcome to Human of the Year. I'm Laura Krejci, fan of humans, and this is the podcast where you get one interesting human, one interesting conversation every week. Hello, people. I have a cold. You might be able to tell from my voice, but that is okay. (laughs) This week's Human of the Year is the lovely Emma Riley. Emma and I have been besties since middle school. It's been a long time. We were actually super weird kids in middle school and we're always doing really weird things. We like to go climbing trees after school. We would do weird arts and crafts that involved melting things with candles and sticking them together. Uh, We were just super weird, but... I don't know if uh, Emma will appreciate me sharing these things, but she is honestly one of my role models that I've always looked up to her. She, Emma is an artist, and she's incredibly smart, and she's one of those people that will just work on a project until she has done her absolute best, um, and it's completely finished, even if it means staying up all night. It's crazy. I always really admired that about her. So today you're going to hear uh, a conversation about our fair city of St. Louis. This is the city where I moved in sixth grade, where I met Emma, and where I spent most of my formative years. It's kind of the closest thing to a hometown that I have. So I was really excited when Emma told me she wanted to do an episode about the city of St. Louis because I think when I tell people where I'm from, they're often not picturing the same bustling, diverse, young, urban sprawl that I am. And my fear, and probably the reality, depending on who I'm talking to, is that most people think rural, southern farmland when I say I went to middle school and high school in Missouri. So I thought I'd preface this conversation with a very brief history of St. Louis, and then we'll get into the conversation a little bit more. So in the early 1800s, St. Louis was a major, major trade hub due to its location on both the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, and it was known as the Gateway to the West because it was one of the cities that kind of saw the most traffic through um, from the East Coast, the settlement to, to the West. Um, in 1904, St. Louis was the host of the World's Fair, which is kind of one of our favorite claim to fame. Uh, it was the World's Fair where the ice cream cone was invented, as well as iced tea, so very exciting stuff. And actually, the the World's Fair was hosted um, on these fairgrounds that eventually turned into a park that is now called Forest Park. It's actually larger than Central Park in Manhattan. It's a huge park and home to one of the best zoos in the country, completely free, another one of St. Louis's many great... Uh, perks that it has. And, of course, you can't talk about St. Louis without mentioning the Cardinals. St. Louisans are extremely, extremely proud of their baseball team, and with good reason, because they're actually a pretty good team, even though I'm a Brewers fan, but I do appreciate the Cardinals, and they are definitely a huge part of living in St. Louis. So that's kind of a little bit of a background as to the history of St. Louis, and today, St. Louis is home to um, Washington University in St. Louis, one of the top research universities in the country. 
It's home to nine Fortune 500 companies, state-of-the-art medical institutions like Barnes Jewish Hospital, and so much more. And while St. Louis is my home and I'm very proud of all the things that it has to offer, there's obviously another side to this and another piece of the puzzle that I haven't mentioned. Race issues and police brutality are very real problems in St. Louis. As you may know, the Michael Brown shooting happened in Ferguson, Missouri, which is actually a suburb of St. Louis and is only 15 minutes from where I used to live. Yet, in all of my time living in St. Louis, I was never exposed to the violence and racial issues that happened just miles from my house. Thankfully, Emma, who is now a student at Washington University in St. Louis, has been lucky enough to gain a little bit more of a perspective on how St. Louis operates as a whole, and just how deep the racial divides are in our city. Stay tuned as Emma and I talk about how the municipal structure of St. Louis fosters segregation how sheltered our perspectives were in high school, and why we as white people have no idea how to talk about race. So, hi, I'm Emma. I am a junior. Uh, student undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis and I study communication design and American culture. I, in my free time, for fun, I love to swing dance. I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm working on that. And I like to sing just when I'm walking, walking around town usually. You sing well in New York? Yeah, that's one of my goals is to set up on the street and sing. Not really. That's I hadn't thought I mean, of that, but maybe I'll do that. Like asking for money, there's just like randos singing as they walk. <laughs> Are they schizophrenic? You know, no. <laughs> Normal people. Wow. Okay. Well, then maybe when they feel blind. moved, they just sing out loud. I'm um, very much in my angry feminist phase. I'm also just kind of in a state of change in general in my life right now. I've underwent, I've undergone, underwent, undergone a lot of changes in the last six months that have influenced me a lot. Such as? I lived in, I moved into the co-op at WashU. It's our only co-op. And it's just pretty radical and different culturally from the rest of Washington University. And pretty artsy and hip. If you will. <laughs> if you will. How are you styling your hair these days? Do you have to use gel? Oh my god, I am figuring it out, man. I oh, man. I stop people on the daily and ask them what products they use in their hair. No way. Yeah. I'll I'll like see someone I vaguely know and I'll be like, hold up a minute. <laughs> <laughs> hold up a minute. What product do you use? Let's get started. <laughs> All right. I think we should start by just describing how Clayton is different from other areas in St. Louis or how, like, even just describing what the Clayton bubble is, quote, unquote, um, so people can have an idea of what, it, what it's like to live in a, you know, mile-wide square that is Clayton School District. Okay, so 
Clayton is technically outside of, so the municipal structure of St. Louis, we have a city and a county that are separated and um, the money is separated, like all of the city functions are separated. Um, but in reality, we call it city-county divide, but in reality it's city and counties. I think there are like over 80 different municipalities in St. Louis, all of which do the things that a city should do, like uh, fire stations, like, I don't know, whatever it is, finance, whatever cities have. Schools. Schools, yeah. hospitals. Um, but obviously that's really inefficient because there are all of these municipalities, some of which are not very large, like Clayton, um, all doing things separately, and that's a huge waste of money. Um, and the way that that happened, the way that they got split, was that basically in... I forget when it happened. The, the city started to lose population in around 1950. Um, but before that point, people thought that St. Louis was... Um, I mean, St. Louis was, I think, the third biggest city in the country. And people thought that it was going to be, like, the place of the future and the place to be. And they invested a lot of money in making it happen. So, like, before, before cars cars were a big thing before highways. People never predicted that St. Louis was going to decline in the way that it did. Um, so at that point when the city was thriving, people were starting to build infrastructure outside of the city. And the city was, the residents of the city and their dollars were going towards building this infrastructure outside of the city. And they were like, fuck you. We don't want our money used towards this infrastructure that's not helping us, so we're going to separate and keep our money to ourselves, and then we'll just have all of our city money, and it'll be great and good and moneylicious. And um, so they made that divide. So, so white flight and people moving out of the city is not unusual in the slightest in American cities, um, but the difference is that in other cities, when people leave the city, the the money is still pooled and kind of like evenly distributed or like it doesn't yeah it doesn't it's like as separated. soon as exactly but in St. Louis as, as soon as people cross that line it's no longer it no longer belongs to St. Louis city so the like formal city of St. Louis is very low on money um and so in terms of where Clayton fits into all of that, Clayton is one of the municipalities of the county. So it's a, it's a county. Um, and it's a very wealthy county. We have a very thriving business district. And um, because of the taxes from that business district, that like is a pretty solid part of the Clayton community, um, there's always a lot of money to go towards the schools. Um, the public school in, in Clayton, and um, for that reason, Clayton public schools are really fantastic in in terms of like formal educational training. I have qualms with like the way that I like the history that I got while I was there, and it's not diverse at all. Um, but in terms of like the way that we formally judge education, they do a really good job. Right. And, and we're even ranked, we're cons consistently ranked number one public, public school, school in Missouri. And, um, and one of the best in the country, too, I think. Really? 
I think I've seen some like like Night Best or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but it's it's a really good school in terms of formal ranking, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because like I think the the structure of the city. Um, and having all these different municipalities reinforces a lot of segregation and, um, like, even though all of these municipalities are really close to each other and most people have cars, um, if they are, like, middle class or above, um, there's very little contact between Clayton and places that are less than a mile away. Like, Ferguson, for example, is a mile away. And I had never been to Ferguson until, like, a year after Michael Brown was shot. Right. And, and so much so that we have, there's a commonly known term, the Clayton bubble, which is, like, kind of the idea that no one in Clayton leaves Clayton or knows anything about any of the other municipalities. And it's weird because I, I like, didn't really conceptualize that when I was in high school, but I was so... A part of that. Like, I always assumed that I wanted to leave St. Louis and that St. Louis was pretty boring. I, until I, like, actually visited Washu and fell in love with it, I assumed that I would just leave the city. And um, there were these cool kids from Crossroads, which is this artsy high school in St. Louis, who always seemed to be doing really cool shit. And I just thought they were, like, the coolest. Um, Kyle and Nick and Jess and mm-hmm. Lily, people like that. Um, but now that I they feel... <laughs> they're pretty cool still. Um, but now that I feel more connected to St. Louis as a city, I'm realizing that, like, it's not that they had any special knowledge. They just, like, paid attention to what was happening. Like, they, like all you have to do is go on the Riverfront Times which is the local newspaper here, go on their, like, events calendar and look up local music that's happening, local shows, just do a Google search, and you can find that stuff. And as soon as you go to one of those things, like, as soon as you... I mean, Washu's a bubble, too. So as soon as you, like, get outside of that and, like, just prioritize going to this cool thing above, like, this one project that you might have to do, it'll connect you to so many other cool things that are happening in St. Louis, and it's the most like, inspiring feeling, and, and, like, St. Louis is so fucked up in many ways, but it's fully formed, like, it's a real city, it's got real problems, and real culture, and, like, creative people, and, and, and so many different people who are challenging, oh my gosh, yes, and people who care, a lot of people who don't care, but a lot of people who care, and you don't discover those people until you actually just, like, start going to things, yeah, um, But, like, when I was in Clayton, I didn't really know about any of that stuff. I wasn't into swing dance then. I just kind of hung out at the Galleria Mall and got snow cones. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I think it takes, like, a very curious person Mm. and someone who's willing to be a little bit uncomfortable at first Mm, to really discover new things. Snaps. Yeah, I mean, I think I was definitely part of the Clayton bubble too, but I, I was, it helped a little bit that I was so into food because I was really into 
trying to discover new food places all across St. Louis, and I was willing to drive to do it, so I was, like, able to see a little bit, like, different coffee shops, but, I mean, that's just, like, the tip of the iceberg, I think. Yeah, and a lot of those coffee shops, I feel a lot of, um, like, conflict or dilemma about places where I feel most comfortable, because I feel very comfortable in coffee shops, and kind of, like, what you would think of as hipster destinations, mm-hmm. but those can also be very exclusive. Like, they're more mm-hmm. exclusive. They're less exclusive than Clayton is. They have more diversity than that, mm-hmm. at least, like, economically and to some extent racially. But still, like, there are all these places with expensive coffee. Right, um, and it's kind of like... Like, that's not available to everyone. thing, you know, it's like... Uh-huh the first things to come to, like, a more diverse neighborhood or, like, um, Mm -hmm. would be a coffee shop. Coffee shop. shop. (laughs) Right. You know, so it's, like, the same type of people that would be in other places might be attracted to the coffee shop and, like, never explore beyond that Mm -hmm. or realize the Mm -hmm. impact of that Mm. coffee shop within the greater community or something like that. Oh, my gosh, yeah, that's so true for... So there's this neighborhood, you know, the Grove... So the Grove is this, there's Forest Park Southeast and there's the Grove. So Forest Park Southeast is the entire neighborhood and the Grove, that's centered around the street called Manchester and the Grove is basically just Manchester, which are, and it has all these cool shops like coffee shops and boutiques and random things, um, musical venues. But if you just step off of Manchester, I mean, 20 years ago, it's kind of like a recent, the Grove is like a recent development in history. Like 20 years ago, it was a really shady neighborhood, um, really poor and a lot of gang and like drug crime. And it's been, I have like weird feelings about gentrification um, because like poor people don't want crime in their neighborhood either. They just like, like, they want, they also want good schools to send their kids to. They also don't want their kids and themselves, like, living around crime. Um, but often, all of those, like, benefits to a neighborhood come with existing residents being pushed out and right. without, like, considering them in the planning process. Right. Um, so the crime has gone down. But, like, seniors are being pushed out right and in then that like, neighborhood. the rent goes up so people have to are forced to move out mm-hmm, if they don't own it but that's like a perfect example like there's this coffee shop named rise in the grove and it really it pulls almost like from what i've seen when i've been there because i go there to drink coffee i'm like bashing it but i also <laughs> drink coffee there um from what i've seen it's it doesn't it seems like most of the people are not residents in the neighborhood. Some Washu kids, just random 20-somethings. Yeah, I think it's really hard. Um, I kind of run into the same issue here in New York because I haven't been doing as much exploring this year, but last year I used to go just, like, to random neighborhoods and try to, like, seek out a coffee shop or something that was kind of, like... In finding a coffee shop, walking along, I would be able to kind of, like, see the neighborhood a little bit, but then it's also kind of, like, 
I would need to get there to feel comfortable. You know what I mean? mm. But I still think it was really kind of a cool exercise just to, because, like, I would feel kind of uncomfortable being in a, in a new neighborhood, and then I would be thinking, like, why am I uncomfortable? Like, am I really mm. unsafe? Am I just uncomfortable because, like... I'm the only white person that I see right now, or like I see you know what people right. It like forces you to think about why you're uncomfortable, and then mm. you know eventually you become more comfortable. <laughs> I never like know what is the line between mm. uncomfortable forcing and yourself right, like forcing yourself into an uncomfortable situation to learn something versus like actually being unsafe. I think it's important to, like, I think that it's important to think about those things in question when you're uncomfortable, like, and you might think that you're unsafe, but really you're just uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar, Mm -hmm. but also, like, I, okay, so I'm in this place where I have been, like, surrounded by fear all my life, like, never stepped foot in North St. Louis without even really thinking about it, without even really thinking, like, oh, there's literally, like, a whole world the same as that I don't know. Like, it was just not part of my knowledge or my history. Um, but, like, embedded <laughs> in that also is this fear of these of this unknown. So I'm in this place where I want to resist that and learn and challenge mm-hmm. myself. But <laughs> this is, like, again, part of how Clayton influences me. The reality is that I've never had anything bad happened to me in a public place. I've never been mugged. I've never been, like, like nothing. Like, I would walk home at night by myself all the time, and it was fine. Nothing ever happened. That was never something that, like, because it was so safe right, for right. white people, for someone right. who looked like me, it was safe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's this weird thing where I'm like, trying to challenge myself and say no to fear because fear can be very um, harmful mm-hmm. but I also like don't actually know I don't have the life experience to handle those situations if something bad were to happen yeah but then again I guess it's like no one really has like you can't really prepare for those situations either you know? yeah until they happen like you're not right you don't know how you're going to react until Exactly. Something I think about a lot when I'm going into neighborhoods that are unknown to me is um, your class that you told me about. Um, Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the community? I forget what it's called. What is the community building? Community building and the the exercise you guys had to do in in St. Louis. Mm. Okay, so community building is this class that's taught by Bob Hansman. His class at WashU is basically, he teaches us about St. Louis history, and we also go on, like, while that learning is happening in class, we also go on tours of different neighborhoods, neighborhoods which, in all of my life in St. Louis, I had never stepped foot in. And um, and we go to a diversity of neighborhoods. I mean, there's an emphasis on poorer neighborhoods that we maybe haven't been exposed to before, but um, we also go also go to um, wealthy white neighborhoods too Um, Mm -hmm. like we went to Newtown which is a development that's happening right now that's being made in St. Charles and um, honestly going to that place was 
a total mindfuck for me because it's so similar to WashU. And when you've been exposed to so much poverty and, like, seeing these houses literally falling apart from, like, 30 years of mm-hmm. disinvestment um, and, like, lack of care from the government mm-hmm. um, and people in general, seeing that much wealth is almost offensive. So, so we went on these neighborhood tours and... I mean, yeah, it it was totally, like, uncomfortable and upsetting and amazing for me, um, and I learned a ton. And there's the reality that, like, that, like, Bob, as a man, can feel more safe right. going to these places than I would, and yeah. I think that, like, what I took from it is, like, I can do that too. I just need to go with maybe one other person who's a man or like several people because we right. were a group and we went to these places and Bob doesn't like, he doesn't look like a target because right. he's so weird, you know? He's not someone Well, this would... reminds me of the Humans of New York guy too. I mean, this is exactly what he does. He literally just walks around with a camera in every neighborhood of New York mm-hmm. and like part of his purpose is to like shed light on the fact that anyone can walk in these neighborhoods and feel safe and, like, learn something. And then you make that... You, like, change that by your presence also. hmm But, like, he probably has made it so that other people feel they can go to these neighborhoods who wouldn't have before. Right, right. Because he's so visible in New York, especially. hmm Yeah, but at the same time, I always think to myself, like, he's, like six feet tall he's a huge dude doesn't like he dresses in like really plain clothing doesn't mm, stand out at all you know like it would be a lot different if I was walking in those neighborhoods too you mm-hmm. know yeah so I I felt that like the class wasn't like he never really touched on that and I felt that it wasn't as intersectional as I would have liked in terms of like how gender comes into play also mm-hmm. but I definitely learned a lot about race. Um, mm-hmm. But another thing that was really interesting, it's actually, it's kind of funny because I'm doing something tomorrow that's related to this, um, but he makes us form a relationship with someone in the community that we met through the class. Um, and he doesn't, he puts very few rules on like what that's supposed to look like. Like you're supposed to meet up with them, talk with them, get coffee. But it's just so weird as a student to like reach out to someone who you've never talked to before, who mm-hmm. you feel is nothing like you. Mm-hmm. And be like, so can we like get coffee for like no reason? Yeah. And then it, you know it's for your class, so it feels inauthentic. Mm-hmm. But, um, I actually so did made, you form a relationship with? So I formed a relationship with the owners of Williams Resale, which is this shop on Martin Luther King Drive. One time I went and visited, and, like, like it's a dangerous area, you know? Um, I actually walked down the street one time by myself, and I think since I was on the main street, you know, it was okay, but I felt so uncomfortable. That was one of those, like, hazy areas between unsafe and uncomfortable. And then they mm-hmm. told me that people were probably eyeing me because normally if you see a woman on the street who's not in uniform, she's a hooker. Well. At any time of day. Um, but 
but and then another time I went and it was during their hours and the door was locked and I was confused and Linda one of the owners answered it and I was like oh did you guys close up early and she was like oh no the Daryl and Clark are just gone so I wanted to lock it because she's there alone whoa um see that's the thing like this is where I feel uncomfortable because I'm like I don't want to enter into situations and be, like, that dumb white girl that's, like, trying to culture herself and, like, walk around in a neighborhood where she shouldn't be. You know what I mean? It's, like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's noble to, like, be unsafe mm-hmm. in the name of, like, making yourself feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? That's, like, but you don't know until you've been there enough or, like, hear from people how unsafe it is. Yeah. I think relationships are key. Mm-hmm. I think, but, like, it's hard when you just don't know anyone. But mm-hmm. I think the more events and random things you go to, you know, you can get people's numbers, and then you can learn from them, and they can learn from you. And, like, it's really not, it really is, like, a two-way thing. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so, yeah, I've been going there, like, off and on, and their son's wedding is tomorrow, so I'm going to their wedding. <laughs> no way! And I'm wondering if I'm going to be, like, if me and my mom are going to be the only white people there, but whatever. So it'll that's be... so crazy. That's so nice that they invited you. I know. That's I know. incredible. I'm, I'm really, um, I'm just really happy that they that invited really me. Fun. And I feel a lot of just warmth towards them in general. They just make me really happy. Wow, that's amazing that you haven't. Like, how many months have you known them? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. and like over those months, I've known them for maybe like five months now over those months I've visited like five times like not that many times like I just stay and I just chill there for like an hour or two and Mm -hmm. we actually watch we watch Judge Judy on their TV (laughs) so another I was talking earlier about um, like the history that I feel I didn't get in Clayton Mm -hmm. and one of the like one of the things that like stands out to illustrate that is Pruitt Igo, which is this infamous public housing project, like known all across the all across the country. It's like the one of the first things that comes to mind when people talk about like public housing failures of the 20th century. Um, you know, it was these high rises that I think they built in like. I don't know, the 40s maybe? Maybe that's too early. But they, it was like, they built them. No, maybe it was later than that. Maybe it's the 50s. But it wasn't clear that St. Louis was on the decline yet. Mm-hmm. They thought a bunch of people were going to move in, and then people just did not. Like, they moved out. And at first, it was like, when it was segregated, there it was like around even white and black. And then once they desegregated and people started moving out, it was almost all black and the high rises were not like I don't think they were ever fully inhabited but the they like the residency and then just declined further and further but like all of this one of the problems one of the key problems of Prudigo was that all this money went into building the buildings and no funds put towards maintenance like mm-hmm. the elevators were never you know like trash wasn't taken out elevators weren't fixed when they broke down so slowly this building just deteriorated and and then that is kind of a cycle where if like one thing goes unfixed then like people don't feel that the place where they're living in is like respected or treated well and then so they don't want to treat it well either like like an example is you know 
people who litter. Like, if you feel like the government thinks your neighborhood is trash, like, why the fuck should you, like, take care of yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Um, but, like, mm. that's an example of people, like, they interviewed people who used to live there, and they were like, I really believe, like, Prudigo really was, was like, this this beautiful place like I really when I went when I moved in there at first it was like heaven and I really believe that if it had been maintained then it wouldn't have declined in the way that it did and everyone blamed us that's crazy honestly that's crazy to me because like um when I since I was working in opportunity finance last summer a lot of opportunity finance is like building these affordable housing projects mm-hmm. that are large like high rises that can um like accommodate a lot of low income families um and there's at least in the projects that I've heard about there's minimum requirements for maintenance funds after the buildings are built like I don't think they're required but like the the microfinance institutions that fund these projects like Ooh. highly highly recommend that they they have funds for at least I think like a year or two after the building is built just for maintenance which is like Not I think enough. a normal practice in construction anyway because there's so many unforeseen costs in construction that you just have to have you know an extra pool of funds for like maintenance and and repairs and going over budget and that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. But even one to two years, like, what? Like, people are going to yeah. live in that for longer than a year. Exactly. And exactly. they're well, the goal is they're that not you gonna... make enough, you make enough profits mm. after one to two years to, like, cover the maintenance costs, mm. but especially in low-income housing, it's not usually true. Another thing that happens in low-income housing is, like, they they start off the rent within the boundaries of like what is low income housing rent and then they like very rapidly increase the rent after 2 years or or they'll be like 20% of the building is low income and then like 3 years later they'll decrease it and be like oh now only 10% is going to be low income and the rest of them like it's like gentrification happens within one building so there's other like higher income people living in the building and then because they're paying higher rent and bringing in profits then they decrease the amount of low income housing and like that's it's crazy I also feel the need to say that I know so little about this like no no I mean I think I don't know I'm just saying that I don't know it all either I feel very much like a white, privileged person. Yeah, about, sure. You know, but... Well, me too, of course. But I think that, like, the anecdotes you shared are still really telling, even if they don't represent every single situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way generally about <laughs> most topics. <laughs> yeah. This is so hard. I feel like... I, I never want to step on any lines being, like, a white person talking about, like, intense racial issues mm-hmm. and stuff, especially when I feel so uninformed. I was talking to someone actually about that, like, an hour ago, mm-hmm. and so, like, when, like, thinking about privilege as, like, a framework, 
Um, and like there are people who like every there are all of these categories of identity that can like give you privilege or not give you privilege like in terms of like race gender ability um, like all of these things so like being white is a privilege being male is a privilege and so like all of these things can intersect to put you like in a like in a it's kind of weird to think about like hierarchy of privilege and I think some people object to that but like all of these categories of that make you who you are like puts you in a certain place and even the people who benefit the most who have like maybe they like had a good education and they had a lot of money and they're straight and they are able-bodied and they had good parents and they're white and they're male like even them privilege hurts like privilege doesn't help anyone right. and I can think about that a lot in terms of gender like even like masculinity the construct of masculinity hurts men men like because right. it's the standard that they can't live up to but mm -hmm. I was struggling to conceptualize it for whiteness because I was mm -hmm. like I don't understand like I can make sense of it in terms of gender but mm -hmm. I don't understand how the like fiction of whiteness like also hurts me and then right. someone was like well think about all of the things that you don't know and all of the people you aren't exposed to and like also there's the reality that white people don't know how to talk about race mm -hmm. um that's like another way that whiteness hurts you mm -hmm. um and so like we we didn't grow up thinking about race really we um, our society didn't force us to think about really anyone else's race other than whiteness because it's all mm -hmm. you see on television and mm -hmm. the media like that's that's like our whole society is embedded with whiteness so there's like a lot of ignorance in terms of like anything like non-white culture and also like how to talk about whiteness mm -hmm. but so so that like makes sense that you don't know how to talk about it but right. also what I've come to do what I've realized is that, like, sometimes I will fuck up, and I'm really, like, I feel very afraid of those moments. Like, I don't, right. I don't want anyone to think that I'm racist, but then mm -hmm. I'm also, like, I think for me, I try to... Um, like reduce the like weight and heaviness that I used to feel about race and racism and conceptualizing racism as not something that um, that like is limited to a few like horrible people who have terrible intentions because I don't know but thinking of it as something that everyone has Right, right. And something, like, I've never had anyone get mad at me. Like, I've never had any person of color be offended when I say I'm racist. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, wow, you're being honest about, like, your subconscious yes. biases. Oh, my um, gosh. I read this amazing article. It was, like, called The Woke Olympics or something, all about using the phrase woke. Do you know woke? I've heard it. But I, so I actually took photos of, have you heard of, have you heard of the flood wall in St. Louis? Mm-mm. Um, there's a flood wall with like a bunch of graffiti art like for like a mile long and it's so cool and I took a photo it 
it's a someone did some graph art of the St. Louis landscape and then it said stay woke mm-hmm. so maybe that maybe this will be interesting yeah and it was all about how like um, like stay woke the phrase has been really um, like whitewashed and people it actually has like roots in like black culture but now it's a really white mm. thing to, to say like where like white people challenge each other to stay woke where um, it's like a challenge to call out racism when you see it mm. um, which is like and then there's like you win when you call out someone that's being racist and like the whole problem with it is that you're like you're kind of um the whole idea behind it is that you're saying racism is like within a few people rather than like a systematic issue you know what I mean so it's like the idea that once you call out enough people or like gather up all the racists in the world like and eliminate those people then racism will be gone you know what I mean it's like rather than addressing the issue from um, like a like a societal standpoint, you know, and like acknowledging that everyone is racist or like racism is within everyone. Mm. I think also though, like I really appreciate it when people call me out. Yeah, and okay. the things that we say as individuals are also part of that system as well. You know, mm-hmm. like the way that we talk is related, or maybe that is a system. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like just mm-hmm. be, trying to be comfortable with messing up, even though that's really hard to do, and not letting it like stop me from participating because that's so much worse. Well, thank you for having such an interesting conversation with me. Thank you for having me on your super cool podcast. <laughs> Hey, thanks for sticking with me on the audio with this one. I conveniently forgot to mention at the beginning that we were having some technical difficulties with recording uh, having to do with Wi-Fi availability and Emma ended up having to record in a noisy cafe. So obviously not the ideal interview situation. I hope it wasn't too annoying. That's all I have for today. Um, sorry that I posted this a day late. It's It's been kind of hectic with finals, but I'm officially done, so hopefully I'll get back on track with a new episode next Tuesday. Um, let me know if you have any comments. I think this was kind of a hard episode to uh, record, to uh, edit, and think about afterwards if you have any comments or uh, feel strongly about any of the comments that we made. Um, I'm always happy to hear them. You can email me directly on my website. So go ahead on humanoftheyearpodcast.com. You can send me a note. You can listen to all the episodes. You can also listen to this podcast on iTunes if you subscribe, um, as well as on SoundCloud backslash humanoftheyear. As always, thank you to Amanda Crayley. And that's all I got. Have a great rest of your week.